0: You're listening to the Keep Going Podcast, where we keep going after the heart of God because He's our only hope. I'm Nika Maples. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of the Keep Going Podcast. Right now, we're in a series called A Walk Through the Psalms, and today we look closer at Psalms 22 through 28. Just a note, I use the New Living Translation as my primary text because it's readable, and I don't approach these podcasts as a scholar, but as a lover of the word who wants to share simple spiritual observations from my own daily Bible reading. Let's review last week's podcast. First, we looked at some mental tools that we can use to stay engaged with our Bible reading. Second, the tools we discussed are keeping a reading journal as we read and looking for themes. And number three, because we've been connecting book one in the Psalms to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, we connected the story of God rescuing Noah to the story of God rescuing David in the Psalms. Number four, we mentioned that one of the themes that's obvious in Psalms 15 through 21 is God is the rescuer. And number five, our touchstone verses were Psalms 18:4 and 16, the ropes of death surrounded me, the floods of destruction swept over me. God reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. Abraham is the next significant person we come to in Genesis. Abraham's journey is reflected beautifully in this section of Psalms. You can read his story in Genesis chapters 12 through 25. Remember that God sought Abraham in order to establish a covenant with him, to make a great nation God's special possession through him and to bring him into the promised land. Let's pull our touchstone verse from the Psalms with an eye on Abraham. So that leads us to Psalm 25, 12 through 14. Who are those who fear the Lord? He will show them the path they should choose. They will live in prosperity and their children will inherit the promised land. Friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. With them, he shares the secrets of his covenant. Here the promised land is first mentioned in the Psalms, and here the covenant is first mentioned in the Psalms. Both are very clear signposts to the life of Abraham, and both are great gifts to us today. To Abraham, God made his intention clear, that he was setting apart his special possession, the people to whom he makes promises and gives his affection. I could teach a whole lesson about Abraham in the Psalms, but I won't. I have to move on to something that captures my heart even more in this section. But before we leave Abraham on the dusty road to the promised land, I'll mention one more thing about him. Don't you love the other great gift mentioned in this week's Touchstone verse from the Psalms? It says, Friendship with God is reserved for those who fear him. Oh yes, that refers to Abraham. We know this because in James 2, we read, Abraham believed God and he was called the friend of God. When we fear God, which is just believing who he is and what he says, then friendship is reserved for us too. Not just ordinary or expected friendship, but the kind of friendship that feels like being cherished and treasured. It even says in this section of Psalm Bless Israel, your special possession. Lead them like a shepherd and carry them forever in your arms. That's Psalms 28, 9. I have a special possession. It's a gold necklace with my name engraved on it. To illustrate its importance to me, I'll have to give you a little bit of background. First, let me tell you that the elementary school I attended participated in a literary meet where we competed with similar schools every year. Students would prepare for a performance or a test, such as music memory or picture memory or extemporaneous speaking. My competition of choice was Bible reading. I won first place in fifth grade with my dramatic reading of Psalm 22. When I say dramatic, I mean dramatic. I delivered those lines as if I were reading a Shakespearean tragedy. I thought there was no chapter in the Bible as moving as Psalm 22. Winning first place with it delighted me so much that I competed with Psalm 22 again in sixth grade, but I got third place that time. I didn't have all of Psalm 22 memorized or anything, but there were certain lines that left an imprint on my memory and almost stayed on the tip of my tongue. So now we come to the necklace. When I was in seventh grade, the words of Psalm 22 leapt right off of the tip of my tongue. At the time, I wore my special possession, that gold necklace, every day. I never took it off. It had Nika engraved on the front and my birth date engraved on the back of a gold pendant. The family friend I was named after had given the necklace to me a couple of weeks after I was born. My mother allowed me to wear it in junior high, but not without adding a stern warning that I should keep it with the utmost care. Then, during a sweltering Texas day in my 7th grade gym class, we were running on the track around the football field and I gasped when I noticed the necklace was gone. I have at least one friend who can still attest to the fact that I I searched to and fro scouring the south end of the football field for any sign of that Nika necklace. It was nowhere to be found. And by that time, class was almost over. In despair, I dropped to my knees by the goalpost, cupped my hands in petition to heaven, and in front of my gym teacher and everyone in my seventh grade gym class, I cried out the opening line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To my little heart, It was that serious. I wanted to find that Nika necklace, but more than that, I didn't want my mother to find out that I had lost it. I knew she was going to be furious. So a moment later, someone did find the necklace for me, and I still have it today. But I laugh as I think about the words that gurgled from my desperate throat during my darkest hour. You recognize those words from Psalm 22, don't you? They gurgled from someone else's desperate throat during his darkest hour. If you remember, in podcast episode one of this season, I mentioned that we can see the visible persona of King David in the Psalms, but later we would talk about an invisible persona. Oh, he's been here moving mysteriously throughout the descriptions in the Psalms, but in Psalm 22, we see him clearly and unmistakably The one who's been walking through the Psalms with us is Jesus. Do you recognize the stunning references to the crucifixion in Psalm 22? King David prophesies of that coming day, speaking in reference to himself and his circumstances and in reference to Christ at the same time. Listen to these lines from Psalm 22. Everyone who sees me mocks me. My life is poured out like water, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, they have pierced my hands and my feet, they divide my clothes among themselves and throw dice for my garments. That's just to name a few. There are more prophecies in Psalm 22. The corresponding fulfillments of each of these prophecies are scattered throughout the gospel accounts of the crucifixion incidentally the words my god my god why have you forsaken me those are found only in Matthew and Mark now i learned those words king david's words for my literary meat performance right so where did jesus learn those words remember that jesus was fully man and he did have to learn the word just like we do he wasn't born with a free bible software download in his brain Jesus grew up with a traditional Jewish education in the synagogue. He probably began just like every boy and girl did. He entered phase one of his education. From six to 12 years old, Jewish children went to synagogue to learn to read and write and to memorize the Torah. The Torah is the Pentateuch, which we've mentioned before is the first five books of the Bible. Pentateuch is the Greek word for it and Torah is the Hebrew word for it, but they both pretty much mean the same thing. The five books that were written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus memorized huge chunks of scripture because that's what most Jewish children did during the first phase of their education. He sat under the same teachers as his friends and they all learned and memorized together. Yet, For Jesus, it must have felt different, like so much more than just words on a scroll. The first phase of the traditional Jewish education was mandatory, but the second phase was reserved for those who excelled in memorizing the Torah. From 13 to 15 years old, Jewish boys who showed promise in the synagogue were invited to continue learning the word, while they also learned a family trade. Jesus learned carpentry, as we all know. Now, are you ready for this? The students had already memorized the Torah in the first phase of their education, so in the second phase, they worked on memorizing the Tanakh. The Tanakh is basically the entire Old Testament. So Jesus worked on memorizing the Tanakh when he was a teenager, and we often complain that we cannot memorize a small paragraph or a few verses of scripture. Later, you'll remember, some of the disciples were called uneducated and ordinary men. I'm thinking that would probably mean they went through the first phase of Jewish education to learn the basic scriptures in the Torah, but did not continue to the second phase to learn the Tanakh. So Jesus learned Psalm 22 right along with the other Jewish boys in Nazareth. Have you ever wondered at what age Jesus realized that Psalm 22 was talking about him How young was he when he knew what was going to come in his life? We know that the teachers of the law were amazed by his understanding of Scripture by the tender age of 12. Did Jesus know even then what he was facing? It sends chills down my spine. Yes, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 while he is on the cross. When Jesus quotes Scripture at any time, we need to sit up and pay attention. But when he quotes it with his last breaths, we need to listen like we've never listened before. He chose Psalm 22. There is so much that is interesting about Psalm 22. See, throughout the book of Psalms, most individual psalms fall into the category of either lament or praise. Many times the lament psalms are about an individual's cry and will contain the phrase, O Lord. And then praise psalms are about a congregational or a corporate call, and they will contain the phrase, sing to the Lord. Amid both of these types of psalms, Psalm 22 stands out as the one with a significant difference. It is both an individual cry, and a corporate call. It is both a lament psalm and a praise psalm. You can see the sharp line in the middle if you look. Right there at Psalm 22:22. it shifts. One moment, David is writing, snatch me from these lion's jaws and the horns of these wild oxen. And the very next line, he writes, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. It moves from an individual's cry to a corporate call. Now, put down whatever you're doing and come closer. You'll want to hear this. There is a third phase of traditional Jewish education. If a Jewish boy excelled at the first phase of memorizing the Torah and excelled at the second phase of memorizing the Tanakh, then he could be chosen by a rabbi to follow in his footsteps and receive teaching 24 hours a day. Not just in temporary trips to the synagogue, but from about 15 to 30 years old, committed students would leave their families and follow a rabbi all day long. But a student had to be asked. They had to be invited. Let that shed new light on the selection of the apostles. When Jesus invited them to come and follow him, it was the invitation of a rabbi, and they might have been surprised. And then he openly asked other people, come and learn of me. Everyone would have been surprised then. These uneducated and ordinary men never dreamed that a rabbi would invite them to follow and learn. Now here's the thing. As a boy, Jesus learned like other students learned. And later when he became a man, he taught like other Jewish teachers taught. Jesus was a rabbi who used the same methods of the rabbis of his day. Sometimes we forget that about him. He wasn't just wandering around with a bunch of people on his heels because they had no place to go. Rabbis walked and taught as they lived life. So that's what Jesus did. He was walking with purpose and his disciples followed him the way that other students followed other rabbis listening and watching and learning from every little thing their rabbi said and did. Here we go. What were the methods of the rabbis? One common rabbinical method of teaching was called remez. This was when a rabbi would recite a portion of a verse, just a bit, with the expectation that his students, who had already been through the first and second phases of their educations, who had already memorized as much as they could of the Tanakh, could fill in the blanks. They already knew the rest of the passage when he started quoting it. The rabbi didn't need to recite the whole thing. In fact, it almost added some emphasis to his message by leaving out the significant part of the passage. In other words, it wasn't about what was said, but about what wasn't said. That's the Remez method. Do you want a contemporary example of Remez in our world? Well, when one of my high school English students was facing a decision, let's say, I, as the teacher, might answer, Well, you know, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. I wouldn't even have to finish it. My student would know that I was referring to the Robert Frost poem that we discussed in class, the one that begins with that line. They would know when I said it, that I was pointing to the end of that poem without having to say the words. I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. In reciting the first part of the poem, I would be suggesting that the student take his or her own path and not follow the expected path or give in to peer influence. I would be teaching in that moment, as I quote the beginning of a poem, and I would be communicating the most through what I did not say. I would be banking on the expectation that my student was familiar with the Robert Frost poem and could fill in the blanks. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's not crying out. He's communicating. He's not giving up. He's giving hope. He's not whining. He is reminding. He is not expressing feelings of abandonment as much as he is expressing eternal truth. Jesus lifts up his voice to heaven for the benefit of those who are still standing on the earth. There he is, the bleeding rabbi who is committed to his students until his last hour. And what he's doing on the cross when he quotes Psalm 22 is teaching. Through the first line of a psalm, he is saying the most through what he does not say. And he is banking on the expectation that everyone within earshot is familiar with Psalm 22. The instant he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was invoking the entire psalm saying, you know, all those prophecies in that psalm look around you, it's happening. This is the fulfillment before your eyes right now. And more than that, he's communicating a life-giving truth to his apostles who were heartbroken. They not only had lost their friend, lost their rabbi, they didn't get what was happening. Their world felt like it was crumbling. But by invoking what they knew of Psalm 22, Jesus was saying, It looks bad now, but it's going to turn around. Soon you will go from words of lament to words of praise. Even if Jesus felt alone, and we know he did because he was fully man, and that's a feeling that is universal among men, he still knew that he wasn't alone. If Jesus knew the Torah, then he knew Deuteronomy 31 6. God says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And if Jesus knew the Tanakh, then he knew all of the times that that same sentence was repeated. In Joshua, in Kings, in Chronicles, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, I will never forsake you. I will never forsake you. I will never forsake you. There is another spectacular connection that you may not have noticed before. Jesus quotes again from Psalm 22 while he is on the cross. In John 19.32, he says, It is finished. Finished there is a Greek word that can be translated several ways. It is accomplished. It is completed. It is done. It is paid in full. And Jesus says it before that in his prayer in John 17, 4 as well. He prays to God, I have brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. The sacrificial system was over when Jesus gave his life. The ultimate sacrifice had finally been given. It was accomplished. It was finished. It could be said that he was quoting the last line of Psalm 22 here, because in Psalm 22, verses 30 and 31, we read It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. He has done this. The Hebrew word there, he has done this, can be translated the same ways. Throughout the Old Testament, it's used again and again to mean to accomplish, to complete, to finish. Hallelujah! When David was writing Psalm 22, he wasn't only prophesying about the Messiah, he was prophesying about us We too are the invisible personas in the Psalms. We are the next generation David mentions in Psalm 22. We are the ones who have come to declare it is finished. He has done this to tell the world that friendship with God is real and available and can be theirs. To tell them that we are God's special possession. And what we could not finish ourselves, he did. He restores my... Today's music is from Psalm 23 by Shane and Shane and is used with permission. Please consider interacting with me and other Psalms readers this week. If a verse from Psalms stands out to you, I want to hear it. Comment on my Facebook page and tell us why it holds meaning for you. Also, if you're not on my email list, go to NikaMaples.com to sign up and receive your Psalms reading schedule and a free hope poster every month. Now may God, the source of hope, fill you with joy and peace as you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk soon. Until then, keep going. It's on my head